Hi, welcome to North Star Big Book. I'm Carly. I'm a recovered alcoholic. We are in the doctor's opinion. We, If you begin on the first page and you turn one page on the right-hand side, um, in my book it's 25, Roman numeral 25. It's probably one or other the other way in the fourth edition. We are halfway through on the page where the doctor writes in a second letter. Many years ago, one of our... The, one of the leading contributors, which is Bill Wilson, so I wrote Bill Wilson above there, to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here he acquired some ideas, and I underline the rest of the paragraph, which he put into practical application at once. Above practical application, I wrote action. And then I circled at once, and that's the time frame it took Bill to do the work. And on the side, I wrote, Silkworth gave it to him. So Silkworth gave it to him because Dr. Silkworth gave him the ideas. He acquired them from Dr. Silkworth about the mental obsession and the physical allergy. And then Bill put those ideas into action. It says, later he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients. I circled the word privilege. And above it, I wrote how to look at telling our story. I wrote, how to look at telling our story. I love this word. It is a reminder and a humble wake-up call. I am totally guilty of this in my early sobriety. And one of my sponsors, sponsors had said to him, don't you dare ever stand up at the podium and say that you didn't want to leave because you were nervous or you didn't want to come here tonight because it's a privilege to do so because we are people who no, should not be asked to come anywhere. So I love that reminder that Bill looked at it as a privilege and that I still need to look at it as a privilege. It says here, and with some misgivings, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them amazing. I underline the rest of the paragraph. And we're going to be talking about what makes us attractive to new people. So I underline the rest of the paragraph. And on the side, I wrote, what makes us attractive to new people? And if you think about it, Bill Wilson, who was one of Dr. Silkworth's hopeless patients, gets sober and comes to Dr. Silkworth and says, can I tell my story to your patients? Goes to the hospital where men and women are being kept for alcoholic insanity and tells his story. It says, the unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them. So that's one of our principles, to be unselfish. The entire absence of profit motive, which is another one. So I have principles written here. And their co community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and warily in this alcoholic field. And on the side, next long and warily, I wrote, without a solution. So he's saying, to, for those who don't have a solution, this is a long and warily path. And I underlined, they believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. And if you are doing the underlying in red, like I am doing whenever there's something that's really intense, I underlined back from the gates of death because that's pretty intense. So I then it says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital stay procedure before 
fits psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. I bracketed the next paragraph and I wrote above it physical aspect of disease. The next couple pages are probably the most used pages I go to when I'm taking a girl through the first three steps and really highlighting the first step. So before we go through that, I want to write a couple of things on the top of the page. I wrote, we can't process alcohol. We can't process alcohol. And underneath that, I wrote disease concept. Disease concept. And next to disease concept, I wrote overwhelming reaction when we put alcohol in our body. Overwhelming reaction when we put alcohol in our body. So that there's a couple of things that we have here. We can't process alcohol. And then the reason why is because of this disease concept, which is we, that we have an overwhelming reaction when we put alcohol in our body. Then, then the part where I bracketed the paragraph, I want to read this, and this is all about the physical aspect of the disease. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, and I underlined all of this, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. I'm going to go over all of this after we read through it. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up in them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So I want to start at the top. This paragraph is so important because it's talking about our physical allergy. So remember, we have a two-part illness of a physical allergy to alcohol and the mental obsession. We're going to get to the mental obsession in a minute. This part is about the physical allergy. And what it says here is that the we believe, which means that the doctor and the people that are studying this and AA believe that when alcohol is put on someone who's a chronic alcoholic, and chronic just means someone who has something happen over and over, a chronic alcoholic, that it manifests in an allergy. So when I put alcohol in my body, an allergy happens. An allergy I have written down is an abnormal reaction. That's just the simple term for it. Allergy means abnormal reaction. So the allergy of alcohol is an abnormal reaction that when I put alcohol in my body and my husband puts alcohol in his body, two different things happen. When my husband has alcohol, his cheeks get red, he feels a little happy, he can get a little tired, and he tells me he doesn't want any more because he wants to enjoy the evening. That's so foreign to me that it's I have a hard time saying it with a straight face. When I put alcohol in my body, the number one thing that's going to happen is I want a second drink, and I get one before I even finish my first. And then after I have my second drink, I have a third, and then I have a fourth, and I keep going until I either blackout or pass out or it's taken away from me. When I put alcohol in my body, the abnormal reaction that I have is I need more. That I didn't know was abnormal because 
it's all I knew and it's all I surrounded myself with. But the book is telling me and the men of medicine are telling me from this book that that's not normal. And, and it goes to say that the phenomenon, which is something that happens that is not explainable, of craving, and above the word craving I wrote physical. So this physical need, this physical craving that happens in our bodies is limited to this class, the class they're talking about is alcoholics, and never occurs, I double underline never occurs, never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So that like blew my mind. First of all, I didn't hang out with the average temperate drinker when I was drinking. I only hung out with people that got wasted. We would say, let's go get annihilated. Let's go get obliviated. Let's go drink until we can't breathe, basically, is what we were doing. Until we can't see, until we don't know what we're doing. That was our fun. Like Our activity was drinking. What are you doing tonight? We're going to go drink at blah, blah, blah. It, there was no other activity. So I wasn't around people that were socializing with wine in their hand or a drink. And so I didn't know that. But when I got here, it was explained to me that the action that I take when I put alcohol in my body creates an effect in my own body that triggers something that makes me need more. And that that only happens to real alcoholics. So that was the first thing that blew me away. Then it says, and I underline this part in red, these allergic types, so that people like me who abnormally react to alcohol, can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And I circle the word safely here. I wrote on the side, can't safely drink. Here's a time where I pause and I identify something that can be glossed over easily, especially with a new person. The first thing I tell them here is that the book does not tell me I can never drink again. We, no one can control whether I drink or not. The book tells me if you're allergic and you physically cannot control the amount you put in your body, you can never safely drink again, which means I can never safely put alcohol in my body. And it also says in any form at all. Form tells me that they're not just referring to the liquid form of alcohol. And this is when I tell the girls I'm working with, we cannot take anything in our body that's going to change the way that we think, right? So I can't take NyQuil if I'm having a hard time sleeping. I can't take Robitussin or a cough syrup that's going to put me to sleep. I can't take some kind of over-the-counter drug that is going to make me feel crazy, caffeinated, under-caffeinated. I can't take pot. I can't snort anything. I can't smoke anything that is a drug. I can't take pills. The only thing I can take medically is something that a doctor is prescribing to me with the understanding of what's going on with my alcoholism and possibly addiction. And I'm aware that it, I'm taking it for the right reasons, and I take it the way it's supposed to take. I'm taking it. So I take medication. I have an anxiety disorder. I've taken medication for ever, and I've been on the same medication since I was four years sober. However, if I'm having a bad day, I don't take two of my pills when I'm supposed to take one. My pill controls the chemical imbalance in my brain. But if I took two because I'm having an uncomfortable day and my, and my prescription says to take one, 
that is me choosing to not follow the directions that my doctor is giving me. And I feel it for me, that's very question. I'm in very questionable territory. But this is the time when I tell the people I'm working with, we can't put anything in our body that's going to change the way we think. Um, okay, so it says, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up in them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. I wrote a couple of things here. I wrote on the side, why did we drink? Question mark. Why did we drink? And then I also wrote, next is to solve, I wrote, hopeless malady, can you relate? Hopeless malady, can you relate? So can you relate to the feelings? And I really like to focus on these feelings. Did you find you could not break it once you started drinking? Did you find you lost your self-confidence? Did you feel that you couldn't rely upon humans, including yourself? Did you feel like your problems were piling up on you and they became so much that you couldn't bear it? I remember mail would just pile up because I was overwhelmed at like the bills or what they were going to say and voicemails. And I was just, the littlest things overwhelmed me. Um, so that paragraph really identifies something that I did not know until I came to AA, which is that there are certain people who are called alcoholics. And the reason why they're called alcoholics is because they have a problem with the way that they process alcohol. And that when they put alcohol in their body, they cannot control the amount they take. Whether they live in a mansion or a refrigerator box, the number one symptom of every alcoholic is that they will pick up the second drink eventually. So that's, that's the physical aspect of the disease. The next paragraph says, frothy, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. When I think about this, I think of, about being at a coffee shop and then the baristas making the, the steamed foamy milk for a cappuccino or a latte. And the way that they make that, that topping is by taking the milk and heating it up with hot air and steam and they make it poofy. And that's just basically hot air in there. So... What they're telling me here, the first 100 men and women, is that you cannot take emotional appeals and blow them up and try to make me stop drinking. Like, oh, look what you're doing to yourself. Look what you're doing to your kids. Look what you're doing to your family. Look what you're doing to your life. Because those are all real, true things. But the reason why we drink isn't because we don't get it. We drink because we have a physical allergy to alcohol. And we have a mental obsession, which creates a, a big thought in my mind that blocks out all those thoughts like, look at your kids, look at your mom, look at your husband, look at your dad, and puts all of those aside because the obsession is a thought that blocks out all other thoughts. And so those kind, heart-wrenching things can't reach this alcoholic because my heart is blocked off with resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfishness that I've placed in between me and you and me and God. So nothing you say can reach me. And I underline the rest of the paragraph. It says, the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. And I wrote on the side the truth. And I wrote on the side the solution. So I wrote the truth and the solution. 
So my message has to have depth and weight, which means I need to tell you the truth, which is that when I looked in the mirror when I was still out there, I hated myself. And I would spend so long in front of the mirror. I can picture it right now when I close my eyes in that little bathroom in Athens, Ohio. And I would stare at myself in the mirror and I hated what I saw. I didn't look on the outside like how it felt in the inside. And I didn't even recognize the person on the outside anymore. And I would look in my eyes and they were always black because my pupils were so big. And I hated what I saw. And I wanted to die. And I didn't. I couldn't stand being with myself. That is my truth. That's what alcohol did to me. And I tell them that. And that's the message that they need to hear. It says, in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. I want to recreate my life because my life is garbage at this point. And I don't know how to do this on my own, and I've tried, and no human can help me. And so they're telling me I have to have something bigger than humans. I wrote on the side over the next... So the next paragraph um, is basically Dr. Silkworth saying, like, look, if you think this is dramatic, try doing what we're doing. And then we're going to get into the meat of step one. It says, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental... Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder what we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And that re word rehabilitation reminds me of recovered. So I wrote on the side the end and I wrote total oblivion. Because they're talking, when Dr. Silkworth is talking about the tragedies, the despairing wives of little children... I wrote the end in total oblivion. These are people who have been placed in a hospital for alcoholic insanity. And they're at their end. And this is, this is what happens to real alcoholics without a solution. The next paragraph is what I always want to remember. And I bracketed and underlined the whole next paragraph. And we're going to go through it together. On, this, on top of the paragraph in that little space next to among them, I wrote in big letters, why we drink. So I wrote why we drink. And it says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I love this sentence because it's so simple. It just, there's nothing that it doesn't encompass. So just to give you some examples. The reason why I drank when I was 13, 15, 16, all those like fun times were I wanted to feel alive and I wanted to get out of the way I felt, which was uncomfortable in my skin. And I wanted to feel free and I wanted to not care about all the things I cared about in my discomfort. And when I drank, I felt like it was something I was good at because I had a girlfriend that was a good basketball player and I had my friends that were drill team and I had the pretty friend and I had the smart friend 
And I didn't have anything, so I thought. And so this was my thing. And I drank because it, it defined me and it made me feel alive. If you ask me what effect I was chasing when I was 19 and a half years old at my end, just a few years later, because my alcoholism was so fast, the effect I was chasing was I wanted to feel nothing. I hoped and prayed that whatever I put in my body would shut up every voice in my head and numb out every feeling I had, including joy. I wanted no feelings because they were all so uncomfortable. I hoped it would kill me and I was bummed out every morning when I came to and I wasn't dead. If I just look at that effect and the progress between the beginning effect of wanting to be free and alive and on top of the world and my end effect, which was I wanted to be dead and numb and feel nothing, that progression of the disease is so apparent. One exercise I really like doing with a group of new people and not new people when we're taking a girl through the first three steps is to ask each person to go around the room and say what effect, when we talk about this, what effect were you chasing in the beginning? And everyone shares their effect. And they're all pretty similar. And then we all answer the question, what effect were you chasing in your end? And it really does highlight it. And it reminds me that that's all I need to know is my own progression. Did my disease progress? Yes. The sensation is so elusive. The sensation they're referring to is the effect that we chased. That while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. So yes, I, I admit it causes problems in my life and the life of the people around me. But after a time, I can no longer tell you what's right and what's wrong. So this was me. I was in theater at Ohio University. I was crazy, crazy, crazy pants. I didn't know if the things that were in my mind were plays that I had read, movies that I had seen, blackouts that I was remembering, nightmares that I had, or something that really happened. And I no longer could tell you what was true and what was false. I no longer could tell you what I believed and what I didn't and what was honest and what was a lie. It says, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. It was normal. It became normal, the things that I did. Waking up next to people I didn't know. Walking home from houses I didn't know how I got to. Piecing together the night before. Not remembering what happened to the money. Not remembering what happened to my clothes. Not remembering what happened. Not remembering how did I get through that test. Did I go through that audition? I can't remember if I checked my name on the list. Not remembering anything, and not even just that, not even just the alcohol, the daily living was abnormal. Living in an apartment where we had an open relationship, where we don't tell each other if we're sleeping with somebody else or not, and we don't tell each other if we're coming home, that became normal. The life I was living, the standards I brought myself down to, the depression and the loneliness and the loss and the lies and the, the manipulation, it all became normal. It says, so this next part I wrote on the bottom of a page, forced periods of sobriety. So I want us to think about this as in terms of forced periods of sobriety. So this bottom part that we're going to go over is what happens to me and to the alcoholic during a period when we are forcing ourselves to not pick up a drink. So either the judge did it. A family member did it, a loved one did it, we did it ourselves. Um, we 
put ourselves in a position where we don't drink on purpose. And this is how we feel. My mom was who did it. My mom and dad are sober in AA 26 years, thank God. And my mom was seven years sober and she was driving me crazy because I was telling her all the time that I was depressed and I wanted to kill myself. I feel embarrassed even saying she was driving me crazy. She was trying to give me a solution and I, she was terrified. And she had the solution and I didn't. And she gave me the physical challenge, which without telling me, I'm giving you the physical challenge. And she said, can you go a month without drinking or using? And I was like, I'm sure. Yes, of course I can. Because I'd always been able to do anything I set my mind to. I was on the dean's list every single quarter in college. I was a 385 student in high school, no matter how much I put in my body. I was involved in every club, including Mothers Against Drunk Driving, as I was drunk driving. I was crazy, but on the outside, I was constantly achieving because I didn't want anyone to call me out and say I was a mess. And when I put my mind to it, of course I was going to be able to stop drinking because I'd never tried to do it, and so this was going to be my first ch chance. What I found was I was able to not drink or put anything else in my body for about three weeks. During this time, I could only do that by not hanging out with any of my friends, not going to any parties or bars, and sitting in my apartment watching movies, smoking cigarettes, and braiding my hair, and listening to music until the next day passed and the next day passed. I literally white-knuckled it. During that period, I went through a shocking experience. I found that where I was once so good at achieving in school, I could no longer function in class. I couldn't show up to class. I couldn't sleep at night because I was so haunted by nightmares I was having and I couldn't fall asleep because I was afraid I was going to have them. And I wasn't falling asleep naturally anymore because I wasn't passing out from all the things I was putting in my body. I was terrified and I was no longer just suicidal, which I was every single day. I was now homicidal. I felt like my chest was on fire and I felt like someone had removed my skin and set me out into the sun and I was super raw and uncomfortable and I felt like at any moment I was going to snap and like my insides were dying. The big book is going to refer to this in terms that are called restless, irritable, and discontent. My sponsor defined those for me. So on the side of the same page, I wrote the word restless. And then I wrote the definition, being uncomfortable in your own skin. Being uncomfortable in your own skin. Then I wrote irritable. And I wrote emotionally violent. Irritable is emotionally violent. And then the last word is discontent. And I wrote never happy. Never happy. And that's because we're full of resentment, fear, and shame. And when I'm full of resentment, fear, and shame, and dishonesty, and all those stories that I have been carrying with me, and now I have to look at, and all my stuff that I'm so uncomfortable with, and I don't have alcohol to make that pain go away, I, am, I become restless, irritable, and discontent. This is what happened to me when I took away alcohol. I didn't know that that was what was happening. What my mind decided what was happening, because I no longer had alcohol in my body, was that a couple of things. It first said, see, you're not a real alcoholic because you've gone three weeks without drinking and real alcoholics cannot go three weeks without drinking. 
And the real problem is you something's wrong with you and you're not on the right medication and you're not seeing the right psychiatrist and you need to find someone better and you need to get on something different. And thank God the internet wasn't around then because I would have found out what that was and I would have looked it up and like diagnosed myself, I'm sure. But I was convinced that my problem had nothing to do with alcohol because I was worse without alcohol. Without alcohol, I was an insomniac. I wanted to kill people. I wanted to kill myself. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't function. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't read. I was so miserable to be around. I was depressed. I was depressive and nobody wanted to be near me. And it says in the book, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience, and on the top of the next page, I underlined the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So I underlined that part. On the top of this, I wrote, our mind tells us to drink. Our mind tells us to drink. And I wrote, believe the lie. Believe the lie. So my mind tells me I'm going to feel better when I pick up a drink. And I'm full of guilt, shame, and remorse. I wrote that on the side. Guilt, shame, and remorse. And I wrote, mind records the solution for the next time we have a problem. Mind records a solution for the next time we have a problem. My mind remembers that when I was sad that my boyfriend broke up with me and I got drunk that day, that it made me feel better. And my mind remembers that solution because the most uncomfortable thing for me is to not feel okay. Being uncomfortable is unbearable. And so I only remember what makes me feel better. And so my mind remembers, you feel better when you drink, remember that. It convinces me I'm not a real alcoholic because I've gone this long. It tells me that my real problem has nothing to do with alcohol and my real problem is I'm not on the right medication and you'll feel better when you pick up a drink. Why don't you just have a little bit so you can calm down and take the edge off and you'll call the hospital tomorrow or your new psychiatrist that you just recently met is and you'll get on a different medication. And as soon as I pick up the drink, I feel better. I actually feel better as I'm pouring the drink, knowing what's going to happen, knowing the relief I'm going to get. It's the only relief I know. And as soon as I pour the drink into my body, I activate the physical allergy, which has been completely dormant for three weeks. The only reason I pick up that drink is because my mind tells me the lie to pick it up. I pick up the drink and it says drinks which they see others and the word others I underline and I wrote non-alcoholics. So I look at people that are not alcoholics picking up drinks and they do it with impunity which means freedom from harm. And then I underline the word after. So after I put alcohol in my body, my mind told me to put alcohol in my body, I put alcohol in my body, I activate the physical allergy, I succumb to the desire, I circle the words the desire and I wrote above that mental. I, I succumb to the desire in my mind again, as so many do, and then I underlined, and the phenomenon of craving develops, and above phenomenon I wrote after. So the phenomenon, the physical allergy develops after I put the alcohol in my body, and I underlined, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And we come to, at one o'clock the next day, humiliated, lost, 
in a walk of shame and we say, I cannot live like this. I'm never going to do it again. And then we go on a forced period of sobriety and we become restless, irritable, and discontent. And we say, I cannot live like this. I need to pick up a drink because I cannot live like this. And then we succumb to it and when the physical allergy is activated and it goes again and again and again. And that is the cycle of alcoholism. It has nothing to do with how much I drink, how long I drink, or how often I drink. It's the cycle of alcoholism. This is a progressive illness. So it says, this is repeated over and over. And ab above repeated, I wrote mental obsession. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, above psychic change, I wrote new mind. I underlined in red, there is very little hope of, of his recovery. On the side, I wrote obsession. And I wrote blacks out all other thoughts. And if there's very little hope of my recovery and no human power can help me, then that means, and I wrote this down, fellowship alone is insufficient. I'm sorry we're two minutes over. I hope you have an awesome day. It's totally your choice. Come back next week.